You know, before we turn to God's Word, I did just want to take a moment and express my great appreciation uh, to you all as a congregation. You know, as Stephen prayed, and as many of you know, uh, I lost my sister this past week uh, after... Uh, after a long uh, battle with cancer, and our family spent uh, this last week in Phoenix ministering to family and to a, to a grieving husband, to four gutted and confused children who are now without a mom, to a mom and a dad who had to bury their own daughter. Uh, and we did her service less than two days ago now, and it was just before that service that I got news of Bill's passing, and it was about the same time that my wife got news that her mom had unexpectedly taken a, a turn for the worse and is now in hospice, and so we got back late last night. We're trying to figure out how we're going to get out to California to try to see her mom. The Lord just moves in mysterious and unusual ways, and I, like you, can struggle with his timing as much as anybody. But I mention all that because uh, what kept us going this week was you. It was your prayers. It was your constant emails and encouragements to us. It was the many ways you have practically helped us so that we're able to host an Easter lunch as we had planned and have about 20 or 30 over to our house. So I cannot express enough to you how much we are grateful for you, how we love you, how the Lord has knit our hearts to you, and how good it is, as hard as it is, how good it is to get back late last night and to come and to give God's word to you and to be with you. So thank you so much. Let's pray. God, we come to your word and we come with the kind of confidence that it provides and supplies all that we lack. And that in it we see and we witness Christ before us, displayed before us wonderfully and beautifully with glorious hope. And so God, we pray that you'd remind us of these things, even as we gather now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder this morning what you're expecting to get out of life. You know, maybe you're a bit younger here this morning. You're looking toward the future, and I wonder how you expect your life to turn out, where you expect it all to, to be headed. I know when I was young, sort of high school, then into college and into my 20s, uh, I had clear expectations. I had pretty lofty expectations, and I desired, I trust like many, a prosperous career, some position, some prominence perhaps. I didn't really long after fame per se, but hey, you know, a little bit of fortune, I wouldn't mind that. A happy marriage, of course. Well-behaved, overachieving children, check, right? Love that too. The proverbial house with a white picket fence, two German cars in the garage, right? Travel, dine, where you want, when you want. In so many words, you could say, I was very much after the American dream with all of its creature comforts. And honestly, that's what I expected out of life, and that's what I thought life was going to give to me. Maybe you found yourself in similar shoes. But maybe you've had to scale back your expectations a bit. Life hasn't quite turned out as you expected it. So I would understand that. You know, I was actually voted most likely to succeed of my senior high school class, which is not nearly as impressive as it sounds. But nonetheless, I was. 
in that Silicon Valley high school, and I don't think in that year anyone, myself included, envisioned success as pastoring a Southern Baptist church in Arkansas. Right? The Lord moves in mysterious ways. But you, you know, maybe at this point in your life, you know, you've scaled back your expectations. You're just aiming for that comfortable, quiet retirement. A little bit of relaxation, a little bit of fishing, playing with the grandkids. Point being, we all have expectations about the future. We all have plans. We all have hopes. We all have dreams. So wherever you are in life, I just wonder how confident are you that your future will turn out as you expect And if you're a Christian, how confident are you that your plans for life actually align with with God's own plans and his own purposes for your life? Have you ever stopped to ask yourself that question? Or do you assume God exists simply to be conformed to your own wishes? Well, friends, it's questions like this that are actually going to bring us back to our study this morning in the book of 2 Corinthians. I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be verses 7 through 18. And if you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, uh, it will be helpful to have one open before you. And we do provide them. There's some red Bibles in the seatbacks before you, and we invite you to pull one of those out. Uh, I forgot to look at the page number, though. Anyone want to tell me what page 2 Corinthians 4 is on? 965? 965, all right. 965. And listen, if you're visiting and you don't have a Bible, uh, let that Bible be our Easter gift to you. We would love for you to take that Bible with you, to reflect on it, read on it, discuss it perhaps with the person who brought you or, or maybe another here. We would love for you to do that. Again, take that with you. That's our gift to you. And if you're new to a Bible, just know the, the chapter numbers, those big bold numbers, the superscript numbers, those little numbers, those are the verse numbers. And if you are joining into this study, the Apostle Paul, uh, he first visited Corinth on a second missionary journey around 50, 51 AD. He'd remained there about a year, year and a half, and he gave himself to preaching and planting a church and pastoring a church there in Corinth, which was a miracle in and of itself that it existed. But now Paul's moved on, and that church is in crisis. It seems some had risen up against the Apostle Paul. They're questioning his integrity and also challenging his authority. And so in this center sort of section of the letter, Paul is having to defend here his own life and defend his own ministry. You know, Corinth valued so much of we would, what we would value as a culture today in leaders, right? They'd value strength and smarts. They'd value self-sufficiency, sort of charming, charismatic personalities. That's what they valued, and that's what they would have valued as well in their spiritual leaders, Some combination of just think like successful stage actor, business manager, life coach. You wrap that all into one. And that's what they were looking for in their spiritual leaders. And friends, Paul certainly didn't look the part, nor did he play that part. Not only did he lack sort of a Broadway voice and a GQ physique, but his life was beset with constant affliction and trial. Simply put, Paul was not impressive. And so some there in Corinth began to murmur, you know, if Paul was really God's man, clearly his life would be going a little better. Wouldn't God spare him such suffering? Certainly there's a different path or ought to be one for Paul. And so Paul here is seeking to correct their own misunderstandings about the nature of the gospel and what the gospel life actually looks like. 
So with that in mind, let's read 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 18. Paul writes, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Well, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. All right, so in 4, 1 to 6, Paul reminded the Corinthians that the gospel life was one that would meet rejection. And here in 7 to 18, part of what he's doing is he's reminding them that this same gospel life is one that's also going to be marked by affliction. So just notice how affliction kind of bookends our passage. You see it right there in in verse 8. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, likely referring certainly to himself, perhaps Timothy or Titus as well, his co-workers. But also toward the end of verse 17, where we read, Paul writes, that these light, and he speaks and refers to these light and momentary afflictions. And I think in in this reference constant to afflictions, Paul's challenging not only our expectations about this life, but but along the way, he's actually going to wonderfully expand and explode what our hopes for the next life should look like. And so thinking about this gospel life that Paul's walking through, I want us to see the pattern of that life. In verses 7 to 12. I want to see the promise. I want us to see the promise in verses 13 to 15. And then the perspective. The perspective in verses 16 to 18. So that's just going to serve as our simple outline right there, right? The pattern, verses 12, uh, verses 7 to 12. The promise, 13 to 15. And the perspective, verses 16 to 18. So first, the pattern. The pattern, verses 7 to 12. Now, patterns are a part of our everyday lives, right? We see patterns in architecture, we see them in art, we see them in wallpaper. If you've ever been awake at night, sort of staring at the wall, or in the afternoon, or just looking down at tile on a floor, we see patterns. We see them in nature, we see them in sort of the honeycomb of a beehive, or the patterns of of a ring of a tree. Patterns give a sense of order, and they give a sense of structure to our lives. And from a very early age, children... 
Well, they learn to pick out patterns. And like scientists, they do so in order to help them explain, and it helps them make sense of the world, helps them predict even what might be coming toward them. And so when it comes to our lives, you know, one of the things we tend to think of is we think of our lives often as being more haphazard. We think our lives don't follow any kind of discernible pattern. Is there, in fact, a pattern to the Christian life? We often think, no, there's no pattern to the Christian life. But Paul actually says, yes, there is a discernible pattern to the life. Namely, verse 7, he's going to help us see that this pattern is, is noted in the fact that we've been given something, he's going to say, as we get to understand this pattern, we've got to first see we've been given something in order to display something. So namely, verse 7, he says, we've been given this treasure in jars of clay. Now that treasure Paul's referring to is the gospel itself. It's the good news of Christianity that Paul gave his own life to. So Paul had just referenced our gospel back in chapter 4, verse 3. It's this gospel of his ministry that's dominating the section of the letter. And perhaps Paul's using this language because he's picking up and remembering Jesus' own parable. Where the gospel of the kingdom, he says, is likened to what? A treasure hidden in a field. And upon discovering it, right, the man will go and he'll sell everything he has in order to acquire it. Now, if we possess something valuable, well, then we generally like to showcase it, right? We like to display it. So a beautiful diamond deserves a wonderful and gorgeous, maybe gold or a kind of platinum setting, a, a priceless work of art, right? That deserves a kind of gilded frame around it. And yet this treasure, Paul says, is not housed in some ornate chest. It's not housed in some gilded box. But it's rather housed in a common, ordinary, unexceptional, even disposable, you could say, jar of clay. Friends, jars of clay, they were just an anonymous part of everyday ancient life. They were used for cooking, for transporting, for storing. You might think of them kind of like Tupperware. You know, you don't finally worry that much if you break it, crack it, lose it, right? You can just easily and cheaply replace it. And that's what jars of clay were. Paul's saying those jars of clay are us, right? We, these bodies, Paul says, they're earthen vessels. And when Paul likens us to a jar of clay, he's not disparaging the physical body, but he's noting rather just how frail and weak our bodies can be, right? Our bodies are not, I was reading about a group trying to make a, a clock that will run for 2,000 years. They're doing it somewhere, I think, in the Texas deserts, West Texas, uh, someplace. At any rate, and they're using industrial ceramics because in their mind, that's sort of going to last the longest period of time, right? And Paul's like, well, you know what? Our bodies are not made of industrial ceramics. We're not Clark Kent. We're not made of steel. Like, that's not who we are. Nor are we made of marble. And of course, what's true of our bodies, you know, is true of our own constitutions, right? Under intense pressure and under heat, what happens to us? We tend to crack. We tend to wither. Like clay pots, whether it's physically or emotionally, it doesn't take that much for us to become brittle and to break. And Paul says that. It's by God's design, verse 8. 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So our bodies may look like the bottom of an old leather shoe. Right? They might be cracked, they might be beaten up, they might be dried up and used up and worn through, and yet, in Christ they possess something beautiful, Paul says. Now, if you were to go put you know, a candle in a steel box and close the lid, right, you would see nothing. But if you were to put that same candle in an old clay jar that's got a few chips here and a few cracks there and this hairline fracture over here, Well, what would happen? You would have beautiful light emanating through those cracks and through the chips of that jar. And friends, Paul says that's how it is with the Christian. It is, in fact, the frailty of our own humanity that provides the perfect vessel for God to display his power. So the the more cracks, in fact, and the more chips the more God's divine light is actually revealed in our own lives. So just consider the implications of that for a moment. Because you may feel especially ordinary. You know, you may feel too ordinary to be, in fact, of any use to God. You look around you and maybe you, you observe people that appear seemingly perfect People with talent and beauty and strengths and things that you don't think you possess. And you think to yourself, right, I'm not like that. I'm no Grecian urn. Like, I'm not this beautiful thing. I I don't have all that. Nothing fancy to me. But according to Paul, it's exactly that. It's exactly the ordinary. It's plain earthen vessels that God chooses to display his power. So the more ordinary you are, the more extraordinary his power is, and therefore you are just the kind of vessel that God delights to use. But you know, you may have come this morning and you may be feeling especially battered and bruised. You may feel like you are too broken to be of any use to God, of any help to God. Maybe you're too used up in your own estimation to be of help and use, too cracked perhaps to hold anything of genuine and lasting value. But do you see, Paul is helping you and, the, and God wants you to know that it is in those cracked pots where he shines brightest. It's in the broken pots where his glory is most beautifully displayed. And so you two are exactly the kind of vessel that God would delight to use, right? It's in you and through you where that power is displayed. Now, if you want to think more about what it's like to be that kind of a one who's broken and often suffering in this life and trying to walk through this life and make sense of it in light of a Savior who is also broken well, he was broken on the cross, but he walks with us, rather, in our brokenness, and who has become gentle and lowly for us. We actually have, how many copies? A couple hundred copies of this? Yeah, I think that's right. We have a couple hundred copies of this excellent resource, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. It's out there in the foyer, so if you'd be helped by this, I'm thinking, okay, how can the Lord use me? How does he work through me? How do I look to Christ and see Christ's work 
right? My yoke is easy, my burden is light, Christ says. How can that be true of me? How can that be true of my life? I would commend this to you. You can pick one of these up as you go, and as you find it in the foyer, you can take it with you as you leave this morning. But friends, this pattern begins to really take shape there in verse 9. Because what do we see? We have verse 9 and 10, all these pairs of opposites, right? Afflicted but not crushed. And there's this wordplay in the original that's hard to, to bring out into English. But you could render all these, all these opposites something like this. And Paul's saying in everything, in everything, he's, he's squeezed, right? He's pressed. That's the idea there in affliction. He's being pressed. He's, he's squeezed, but he's not squashed. He's bewildered, right? He's perplexed. He's bewildered, but he's not befuddled. He's hunted. You know, that, that word for, for persecuted is actually the one used in hunting. He's being hunted down. He's hunted down, but he's not been rejected, not been turned over. He's knocked down. That speaks to physical beatings right there, that reference to uh, struck down. He's knocked down, but right, he's what? He's not knocked out. And the the fact that that's true of unimpressive Paul, right, that he can be squeezed and not squashed, that he can be knocked down but not knocked out, the fact that's true of Paul, recognize that has everything to say about God and nothing to say about Paul. But it does get to this pattern in Paul's life, one of trouble and affliction, one of hardship and oppression. And I think, friends, we can struggle here. Yeah, of course, we love, right, we love reading these words, afflicted, not crushed, perplexed, not driven to despair, but we have a harder time living in the, but yeah, afflicted and perplexed and persecuted, you know, because for the last 300 years, for the most part, culture and Christianity have just walked hand in hand, where a Christian was not just expected, but it was in fact celebrated, where being a member of a Christian church wasn't just normal, but to be a member of a Christian church was actually profitable often. But friends, there's actually nothing in the New Testament that suggests the last 300 years is in any way normal or normative for Christians. Instead, it's, it's a historical anomaly. Right? Paul was intimately acquainted with rejection. And the New Testament says, you know what? That's what we should expect. We shouldn't expect the world to roll out the red carpet for us. Right? We can think about 1 Peter, other texts like that. Paul was acquainted with rejection, with affliction. And so in that sense, Paul hardly serves as an attractive endorsement for all the advantages of being a Christian. And yet he holds himself out this way. But friends, was it not Jesus who said that all who follow him must what? We must bear our crosses. We must be willing to give up our lives in order to gain them. Now, this is not just some pious pro forma on Paul's part. No, this is, this is Christian realism. Paul's dealing directly and plainly with us. And so, my friend, when it comes to suffering, my Christian friend in particular, when it comes to suffering, God does not promise that we'll escape it. He doesn't promise that we're somehow going to be miraculously immune to it, but rather that God has us secure in it. That's the promise. Now, to be clear, Paul doesn't seek to imitate Christ's sufferings. He's not seeking Christ's sufferings, but at the same time, he's not going to shy away from those sufferings if the Lord should bring them. Preaching Christ crucified, that was not just Paul's message. Friends, that was the life he modeled. And it's the life he assumes that every believer in Christ will also model. So notice verse 10. What does Paul write? He says, 
we always, not sometimes, not occasionally or rarely, but we always carry in the body the death of Jesus. Verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, i.e. on account of Jesus. So Paul's speaking specifically of the kind of sufferings that come because he is a Christian who is sharing the Christian gospel. So notice, in everything, he finds himself afflicted and persecuted in the rest. Always, right? Always the death of Jesus. Paul's saying this pattern is not unusual, it's normal. It shouldn't be seen as the exception, but it is the Christian expectation, this kind of a pattern. Summarized in verse 12, as he ties it up, this first section, what does he say? So, death is at work in us, but life in you. And there's that pattern. Death leading to life. Friends, all of us, as I open, all of us have goals in this life. And sometimes when we come to Christ, we can think mistakenly that God's objectives and God's goals are to help us reach our own goals and objectives. We assume God's just going to join us in the path for our lives. And maybe we actually think God's going to kind of clear the path for us, like God's some divine snowplow. He's going to get out in front of us. He's going to clear the way and make our lives smooth sailing to mix metaphors, right? You get the point. Nice and easy. But friends, in coming to Christ, right, we give up our paths to embrace his. This path, this pattern of death in us is what Paul says we're called to embrace in order that life may be seen and witnessed and received in others. And until we recognize that pattern, and until as Christians we learn to embrace that pattern, I think we're going to be forever struggling to make sense of our own Christian lives. We're going to live in constant frustration not understanding why life has turned out the way it has. We'll feel like, right, God hasn't come through on his end of the bargain. And so the question we're asking is often, God, why aren't you giving me what I want? I've been praying for these things. They're good things. Right, God, why aren't you coming through for me? And yet Paul's saying the question we should be asking is, how am I giving myself? How am I giving of myself for the spiritual benefit of others? Right? Death in us, life in you. Because that's right at the heart. One giving oneself up for the spiritual benefit of others. That's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. You know, some years ago, uh, there was a celebration to mark sort of the 100th anniversary of the gospel coming to the Democratic Republic of Congo. And so there's food and there were festivities and there were speeches and music, a great time of celebration. And yet toward the end, a very elderly man shuffled up to the podium and he took the mic and he spoke of how when the missionaries first came there to Congo, the people thought them odd and their message sounded very suspicious. And so the tribal leaders, in order to test these missionaries, slowly poisoned them over a period of weeks, months, even years. Children of those missionaries died one by one, and they buried their children in the ground. And at that, 
the old man stopped and he said, it was as we watched how they died that we decided we wanted to live as Christians. Right, there it is again. Death leading to life. Friends, that is the pattern of the Christian life. But why live this way? Right? Why live this way? Why embrace this life characterized by death? Some of you may be thinking right now, like, this joker forgot it was Easter. This, is the, this was like the Good Friday message. This isn't the Easter morning message. What a downer of a sermon. But hold tight, right? Because verses 13 and 15, Paul's going to give the reason. Actually, he's going to hold out the promise for why this kind of life Death in us, life in others, why that's actually worthy of every one of us. And it brings us to our second point, the promise, the promise. And actually, he doesn't just give us one. He gives us three promises in verses 3 to 15. He's going to give us the promise of, of redemption or salvation there in verse 13. He's going to give us the promise of resurrection in verse 14. And then of exaltation in verse 15. So first, we're going to see this promise of redemption, verse 13. Paul quotes in verse 13, he quotes uh, Psalm 116, I believed and so I spoke. Now, sometimes we think biblical writers grab biblical texts a little bit like we do. Um, you know, they, they grab something as it comes to mind to buttress their argument. And, you know, we do this like with passages, 1 Corinthians 13 on love, right? We're thinking, oh, you know, what a sweet moment. I'm going to grab that passage on love. Even though it actually has nothing to do with marriage and nothing to do with love as we tend to think about it. If you read it in the context of chapter 12 and 14, Paul's doing something very different. But nonetheless, that's what we often do. Sometimes we think biblical authors do the same. And yet, the biblical authors, when they quote an Old Testament text, often what they're trying to do is much more. So if you've ever been in a situation where someone has begun to sing, maybe like the chorus of a song, and as they lead out in that line, you're like, oh yeah, I know this song, and it sort of encourages you to jump in and you finish the refrain and you continue singing out the song. Well, that's often when they grab text, that's often what they intend to do. Not just the few words, but they want you to remember the entire context of which those words came the whole song, if you will. And so when Paul quotes from Psalm 116, he's not just wanting to think of those few words, I believe and so I spoke, but the entire psalm itself. And it's a psalm that we heard read for us earlier in the service where King David is in the throes of death and there's great affliction. And yet, as we heard in that psalm, in the midst of that affliction, David's not forsaken. Right? God is with him and God redeems him. And that quote, I believed and so I spoke, that is actually the turning point of Psalm 116. When God redeems David and delivers him from death. And so when Paul quotes it, what he's attempting to say, and what he's trying to convey is because we share, we share that same spirit of faith that David did, we have that same promise of redemption that God will deliver our lives. That's what he's calling to mind. And therefore, he says, because of that promise, he says he will continue to speak and minister the gospel boldly. And so notice what David, what Paul does. He grabs upon God's past faithfulness, and he wants that past faithfulness to fuel his present faithfulness. You know, sometimes we read the Old Testament like it's a bunch of stories that are entirely disconnected from us. They have nothing to do with us. 
But Paul never treats the Old Testament like that. Paul regularly looks back to Old Testament stories and to events, and he sees in those stories and in those events and those people, he sees patterns that are meant to teach us and instruct us and encourage us about who God is and about how he works with his people. So he's meaning for us to draw strength and encouragement and sometimes warnings, right? Those stories, even like Psalm 116, that's there for us to draw encouragement. But it's not just this promise of redemption that God will finally save our souls, but it's also this, if we persist in this life, despite all the hardships, Paul says, we can know. He actually will say, because we know, Paul can persist, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus, verse 14, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. All right, here we go. Now we're like finally getting to Easter, right? Here's resurrection, not just redemption, resurrection here in the text. And notice how Paul treats the physical resurrection of Jesus just as a plain historical reality. He's not referring simply to some spiritual resurrection of Jesus in our own hearts. No, for Paul, everything hinges on whether or not this Jesus was in fact bodily and physically raised from the dead. And if he hasn't been raised from the dead, Jesus... Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 15, if he hasn't been raised, then his faith is futile. Then we're still in our sins. We're to be of all people most pitied, Paul says. Right? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul's basically saying, hey, joke's on us. And this is all a waste of time. But if Jesus has been raised, right? if he has been raised, then everything's different. If he hasn't been raised, we don't need to listen to a lick of what Jesus said or Paul said. But if Jesus has been raised, then friends, that means we've got to listen to everything Jesus said. Because there's none like him. A dead Christ, friend, a dead Jesus, if that's your notion of Jesus is a, just a good teacher, a dead Christ can do nothing for you. But a living Christ, a resurrected Christ, now that Christ can do everything for you. And that's where everything turns for Paul. So if you've come here this morning, you know, maybe a family member dragged you on Easter. Maybe you just decided to show up. We are so grateful you're here for whatever reason you came. I'm really grateful you're here. And I just want you to recognize that the thing that God would most want of you to recognize about the risen and resurrected Jesus is that he alone can pay for your sins. There's no one else that can do that. So this redemption and salvation we just talked about, recognize that is only possible because we are sinners if someone bears our sins for us. We cannot bear our sins alone. It's why God sent Jesus, his perfect son, humbly in the form of sinful flesh, who lived perfectly, and then who died sacrificially, and then who rose victoriously, and who we see is going to return gloriously, and he's going to call us all home to him. And he alone can deal with your sin. And so if you've come and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ... I would appeal to you, I would urge and implore you to reflect hard on what you're going to do about your sins before holy God and look to this Jesus and know that he alone can save and delights to do so and he's worthy of all your worship. 
If you've got any questions about that, I'll be at the back door on the way out. I'd love to chat with you. Other folks here would love to talk with you. Love to think about that. But notice as well that it's precisely because Jesus has been raised, right? Resurrection, Easter, it's not just about the resurrection of Jesus. Though it's principally about that, that's not the only thing it's about. Because Jesus has been raised, Paul says what? We too, because Jesus has been raised, we too will one day be raised. My Christian friend, do you ever ponder that on Easter? Or does it stop just with the resurrection of Jesus? I shouldn't say just. I mean, it's amazing. But does it stop there? Every Easter is not just a celebration of what's past, right? Of Christ's resurrection. Every Easter is also a celebration of what's to come. Of our own resurrection in Christ. So don't we, we don't just gather this morning to celebrate that Christ has been raised. But we come to celebrate that if we are in Christ, then one day we too shall be raised. That's what we come to delight in. So notice how the resurrection of Jesus, it changes the face of death for all of his people, right? Death is no longer a prison. It's a passage into God's presence. That's what death becomes. So Easter says, right, you can put truth in a grave, but it won't stay there. You can persecute it, you can beat it, you can nail it to a cross, you can wrap it up in sheets, you can shove it in a tomb, you can do what you want, but it will rise and so will you. You know, Nick Roark, when he was here uh, back in November preaching on Luke 7, he had one of those great lines. He said, friends, there's nothing we face that a good resurrection can't fix. You remember that line? That was such a wonderful line. I was thinking about that, reflecting on this message. And friends, we need that reminder, right? Members of UBC, Stephen prayed. We grieve Bill Thomas, right? His passing this week. I mentioned my own struggles. You know, Erin's got to go out and see her mom, hopefully before she passes out in California. Jesus' resurrection puts everything in a whole new perspective, It doesn't remove our grief, but it does fundamentally redefine it and reorient it. And notice, too, how these pronouns have changed from we, Paul's speaking about he and his compatriots, now, right, to it's you and it's us. Verse 14, will raise us, right? God will bring us. Paul's highlighting he's going to be raised with them. So the Corinthians struggled to see themselves as a community, They liked to first see themselves as individuals, those who were economically, who were religiously, right, self-dependent, self-sufficient, self-reliant. And Paul wants to change all that as he changes the pronouns. He wants to see that, yes, they've been redeemed as individuals, but they've been redeemed into a community, and they're going to be resurrected as a community. If you want to go think about that, look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. They'll be resurrected as a community. Because, friends, Christianity, I don't know what you might have heard or bought into, but Christianity is never just a Jesus and me mentality. I used to think of it like that. It's Jesus and me. That's what Christianity is about. Not actually the Christianity of the Bible. New Testament Christianity is not Jesus and me mentality. It is Jesus and us. Together we go. And it's this corporate promise of verse 15 that comes 
more to light there, this promise of exaltation, right? Paul persists, he says, despite all the hardships, because he knows that finally all of his proclamation will ultimately lead toward salvation of others, which will resound in greater exaltation, right, and glory and praise to God. So we have this redemption, this resurrection, this exaltation. And friends, I wonder if you've stopped for a few minutes and as you've pondered those promises, I wonder if that at all puts your present sufferings in a different perspective and in a different light. Because that's where Paul goes. He says they ought to. Right, verses 16 to 18. So we've thought some about the pattern and the promise. Now we get to the perspective. Verses 16 to 18. Paul says, because we have these great and precious promises at heart. He says, because we have them, therefore, verse 16, we do not lose heart. Now if that sounds familiar, he used the same expression back in 4.1. He said, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So Paul's saying, hey, we don't lose heart. Because we've been given this great gospel ministry, verse 1 of chapter 4, and because what else? We have this great gospel destiny. And it's with that destiny in mind that that destiny fixes our perspective. For though our outer self, he says, is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So notice what's happened in Paul's argument. He's talked about his present afflictions in verses 7 to 12. And how those present afflictions are buoyed by God's promises in verses 13 to 15 which in turn then transform his present perspective. That's the flow. Afflictions, and yet he's buoyed, he's strengthened by God's future promises, which then fuel his present perspective. You know, when my wife and I lived in Louisville, we attended a struggling Baptist church for a number of years. And I'll never forget when we were at the church And it was a very small church, and we had not yet witnessed a baptism. And the first Sunday we witnessed that baptism, I'll never forget it, because it was right behind sort of the pulpit, and there were curtains. And I didn't realize it was there, and all of a sudden the curtains just moved, and there was this audible gasp. And it was because in sort of on the walls of that baptistry was this huge mural of something that kind of looked like the Jordan River. But that was the problem. Right? It only kind of looked like the Jordan River. First of all, there were pine trees. Like we're in South Arkansas. No pine trees in the Palestine of Jesus' day. Right? There were pine trees. And then the trees in the back were just the same height as the trees in the front. Which, if you think about it, meant those trees in the back were like a thousand feet tall. And the river that sort of meanders through, it never got smaller as you looked back toward the horizon. In some respects, it seemed to get larger. Right? Everything was out of proportion. There was no perspective to the mural. It was all very disorienting. So if we were watching one of those mesmerizing Bob Ross videos, right, where he does those landscapes... Some of you guys go down maybe to Doomsday. Bob Ross is always on now, down at Doomsday Coffee. 
I don't know what it is that's so mesmerizing about Bob Ross. The hair, uh, the, the voice, I don't know what it is. But nonetheless, Bob would teach us and remind us that however a picture is drawn, you've got to draw it from a particular perspective and it must be built around the right proportions or else that picture just has no meaning at all. Well, friends, it's like that in life. Our lives come to have meaning only when we come to understand them from the proper perspective. Paul says that his outer life and our outer lives are wasting away. And yet, we need to look at that from the perspective, right, that the inner life is being renewed day by day. You know, I mentioned my sister. I had a, just that was hard reality to witness. You know, someone who's 5'10", tall, strong, and toward the end of their life due to cancer, they're more like 5'4", 80 pounds, contorted, bent over. They are a shell of what they used to be, the outer body clearly wasting away. And yet, if you knew her and you knew her life, and as we heard testimonies on late on Friday about her own life, her inner life was indeed being renewed day by day. A clay pot, right, whose cracks were revealing the power of God in her life. Such that Paul can say even his present sufferings, he can call them light and momentary afflictions that prepare for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And friends, that's amazing because back in 1.8, He referred to how utterly burdened he was beyond strength. And he used much of the very same language. But now it's as if Paul has gotten his perspective right. He's reoriented his eyesight. And he doesn't deny those sufferings. But he looks forward to heaven and knows how glorious they will be and how heaven will be because of those sufferings. Paul's saying it's a matter of perspective. But friends, so many of us are nearsighted. So I went to uh, our city's most prestigious and renowned optometrist recently. You all know him as Cliff Hughes. Had my eyes checked. Oh, well, yep, eyes checked. Here we go. Eyes checked. Um, and, uh, you know, he said, yeah, Brad, you can see what's in front of you just fine. The problem is you can't see what's about five feet beyond you. Um, we were talking about bifocals. It was a humbling meeting. But needless to say, the point was the... F- What's out, in the, what's out in the distance is blurry, it's hazy. And friends, that's how so much of the Christian life is for many of us. Right? We look down, we see what's in front of us just fine. But we can't see what's beyond us. And we fail to remind ourselves, therefore, of what's in store for us. And the problem isn't that God hasn't told us. It's that we struggle to see it, to make sense of it, to, to behold it, to cling to it. And Paul's saying, yet you need to don those spectacles of faith to see out into the future and remind yourselves of what is yours. And with that perspective, this life will be glorious. But in the pressures of everyday life, we don't do that. We take off those spectacles and we fix our eyes on what's right in front of us. So much that doesn't last. What does Paul say? It's transient. Everything in this life Everything you long for, that thing you so desperately want, it has an expiration date. It will either rust away or be eaten away or it will drift away. It will do any number of things. It is passing away, which is why Paul calls us to constantly fix our eyes out into the future as we remain faithful in the present. So friend, just I ask again then, what are you expecting out of your own life? 
What are you hoping to get out of it? You know, we, we all come to them, our lives with dreams. Maybe God stripped you of some of those. Maybe even this morning, he's working through this text to reorient your gaze, lifting your eyes upward, taking them off heavenly treasures that can't deliver and onto that which cannot be taken from you. You know, in the words of C.S. Lewis, he said, aim at heaven and we'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and we get neither. Friend, the Christian life is one of paradoxes. Right? What does Paul say? He opens treasures and jars of clay. And in the words of the old Puritan prayer, if we are to finally arrive on those eternal shores, we must learn that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess everything. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. And that the valley is the place of vision. Death leading to life. Friends, does that describe you? Describe Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, as we come, we come and we confess that we expect far too much out of this life. And we look for far too little out of the life to come. We are far too earthly minded to actually be of any good. And if we were more heavenly minded, we'd be of much tremendous good. And so, God, we pray that you would give us proper perspective, fixing our eyes on those future promises as we face our present problems. God, we pray that you would be doing this in us and that this pattern of death in us in order that life may be born and witnessed in others. Oh, God, we pray it would be true of us and we would see it in those around us. May it mark us as a body, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.